Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Fortations Life to Tape. We're recording part four of our junior classic series. We had a little mix-up where uh, we are, we're actually going back in time. Uh, we're going to the very beginning of the book. I realized that I skipped uh, the first section. And so this is a podcasting 2.0 app, which means if you have a new podcast like Podverse or Fountain, uh, you can easily find Fotations Live to Tape. Uh, if you search for Fotations Live to Tape and you can't find it on your podcast app, that's because it's probably an older podcast that's not 2.0 compliant. The advantages of podcasting 2.0 is that you can help uh, fund Fotations as you listen, where you can stream Satoshis, which are the smallest unit of Bitcoin, uh, back uh, to me, the podcaster, or any other podcaster of your choice, as you listen to either this podcast or their podcast, you can have it stream. You can stream, uh, you know, five satoshis for every minute of a podcast you listen to. So you only pay for what you listen to, and it's completely up to you. If you only want to stream one satoshi, you can stream one satoshi. Uh, a satoshi is, like I said before, the smallest unit of Bitcoin. And it's about, it's, I think it's technically under a thousandth of a cent. So 0 0.001 cent. And so you might say, oh, that's, you know, so little, that's trivial. You know, why does that even matter? Well, it all adds up. If you have, you know, 50 people uh, listening to an hour show, you know, that would, that would add up. It certainly helps. It's better than nothing. And, uh, you know, people contribute what they can contribute. If you'd like to donate a more substantial amount, you can uh, donate directly if you go to FotationsDonations.com. And there will be links below where you can, you know, take out a subscription on either PayPal or Patreon. You can even donate Bitcoins directly. Um, and so there's also equipment donation where I have an Amazon list of things that I would need that I can use to do more photographic series and so you can gift those uh, if you have an Amazon account and I also have a PO box where you can you know send old-fashioned checks if you don't want to use PayPal or anything and then it tells you, you know, where to fill out the check and, and who to make it out to but I want to thank everyone for coming out to this episode like I said we're going back in time so we kind of did we messed up a little bit and started reading the junior classics out of out of order, but the good news is we caught it. So we're going back back to the first story, which is Manzabo with the Mischief Maker, adapted from H.R. Schoolcraft. There was never in the whole world a more mischievous busybody than that of the notorious giant Manzabo. He was everywhere, in season and out of season, running about and putting and putting his hand in whatever was going forward. To carry on his game, he could take almost any shape he pleased. He could be very foolish or very wise, 
very weak or very strong, very rich or very poor, just as happened to suit his humor best. Whatever anyone else could do, he would attempt without a moment's reflection. He was he was a match for any man he met, and there are few Manitos, good spirits or evil spirits, that could get the better of him. By turns he would be very kind or very cruel, an animal or a bird, a man or a spirit, and yet in spite of all these gifts, Manabu was always getting himself involved in all sorts of troubles. More than once in his course of his adventure, more than once in the course of his adventure was the great maker of mischief driven to his wit's end to come off with his life. To begin at the beginning, Manzaboha was yet a youngster, was living with his grandmother near the edge of a great prairie. It was on this prairie that he first saw animals and birds of every kind. He also there made first acquaintance with thunder and lightning. He would sit by the hour watching the clouds as they rolled by, musing on the shades of light and darkness as the day rose and fell. For a stripling, Manzabov was uncommonly wide awake. Every sight he beheld in the heavens was a subject of remark, every new animal or bird an object of deep interest, and every sound was like a new lesson which he was expected to learn. He often trembled at what he heard and saw. The first sound he heard was that of the owl, at which he was greatly terrified, and quickly descending the tree head he had climbed, he ran with alarm to the lodge. Noko, noko, grandmother, he cried. I heard Amando. She laughed at his fears and asked him what kind of noise it made. He answered, it makes a noise like this. Cuckoo, cuckoo. His grandmother told him he was young and foolish, that what he heard was only a bird, which derived its name from the particular noise it made. He returned to the prairie and continued his watch. As he stood there looking at the clouds, he thought to himself, It is singular that I am so simple, and my grandmother so wise, and that I have neither father nor mother. I have never heard a word about them. I must ask and find out. He went home and sat down, silent and dejected. Finding that this did not attract the notice of his grandmother, he began a loud lamentation, which he kept increasing, louder and louder, till it shook the lodge and nearly deafened the old grandmother. Manzabo, what is the matter with you? she said. You are making a great deal of noise. Manzabo started off again with his doleful humdrum, but succeeded in jerking out between his big sobs, I haven't got any father nor mother, haven't I? Knowing that he was of a wicked, vengeful nature, his grandmother dread dreaded telling him, the story of his parentage, as she knew he would make trouble of it. Manzabo renewed his cries and managed to throw out, for a third or fourth time, his sorrowful lament that he was a poor unfortunate who had no parents or relatives. At last she said to him to quiet him, Yes, you have a father and three brothers living. Your mother is dead. She was taken for a wife by your father, the West, without the consent of her parents. Your brother are the north, east, and south, and being older than you, your father has given them great power with the winds according to their names. You are the youngest of his children. I have nursed you from your infancy, from your mother's died when you were born. I am glad my father is living, said Manzaboza. I shall set out in the morning to visit him. 
His grandmother would have discouraged him, saying it was a long distance to the place where his father, Nimbrin, or the West, lived. This information seemed rather to please than discourage Manzabohu, for by this time he had grown to such a size and strength that he had been compelled to leave the narrow shelter of his grandmother's lodge and live out the doors. He was so tall that if he had been so disposed, he could have snapped off the heads of the birds roosting on the topmost branches of the highest tree as he stood up without being at the trouble to climb and if he had any time taken a fancy to one of those same trees for whacking stick he would have had more no more than to do pluck it up with his thumb and finger and strip it down the leaves and twigs with the palm of his hand bidding good-bye to his old grandmother who pulled a very long face over his departure, Manzabohu set out at a great pace, for he was able to stride from one side of the prairie to the other at a single step. He found his father on a high mountain far in the west. His father espied as he approached at great distance and bounded down the mountain side several miles to give him welcome. Apparently delighted with each other, they reached in two or three of their giant bases the lodge of the west which stood high up near the clouds. They spent some days in talking with each other, for these two great persons did nothing on a small scale, and a whole day to deliver a single sentence. Much such was the immensity of their discourse, was quite an ordinary affair. One evening Manzabo asked his father what he was most afraid of on earth. He replied, nothing. But is there nothing you dread? Here, nothing that could hurt you if you took too much of it? Come, tell me. Manzabu was very urgent, so at last his father said, Yes, there is a black stone to be found a couple hundred miles from here, over that way, pointing as he poked. It is only the only thing on earth I am afraid of, for it could happen to hit me on any part of my body. It would hurt me very much. The West made this important circumstance known to Manzabo, in the strictest confidence. Now you will not tell anyone, Manzabo, that the black stone is a bad medicine for your father, will you? He added, you are a good son, and I know you will keep it to yourself. Now tell me, my darling boy, is there not something that you don't like? Manzabo answered promptly, nothing. His father, who was of a steady and persuasive nature, put the same question to him several times, and each time Manzabu made the same answer, nothing. But the West insisted there must be something you are afraid of. Well, I will tell you, said Manzabu, what it is. He made an effort to speak, but it seemed too much for him. Out with it, said the West, fetching Manzabu such a blow on the back as to shook the mountain with its echo. Gee, gee, it is, said Manzabu, apparently in great pain. Yes, I cannot name it. I tremble so. The West told him to banish his fears and to speak up. No one would hurt him. Manzabo began again, and he would have gone over the same make-believe of pain had not his father, whose strength he knew was more than a match for his own, threatened to pinch him into a river about five miles off. At last he cried out, Father, since you will know, it is the root of the bulrush. He who, he who could... With perfect ease of spine and sentence, a whole day long seemed to be exhausted by the effort of pronouncing that one word, bulrush. 
Sometime after Mounsbow observed, I will get some of the black rock merely to see how it looks. Well, said the father, I shall also get a little of the bulrush to learn how it tastes. They were both double-dealing with each other, and in their hearts getting ready for some desperate work, they had no sooner separated for the evening than Manzabo, striding off the couple of hundred miles necessary to bring him to the place where the black rock was to be procured, while down the other side of the mountain hurried Nuremberg the west. At the break of the day, they each appeared at the great level on the mountain top. Manzabo with twenty loads at least of the black stone on one side, and on the other side the west with a whole meadow of bulrush in his arms. Manzabo was the first to strike, hurling a great piece of black rock which struck the west directly between the eyes, and as he returned the feather with such a blow of the bulrush that rung over the shoulders of Manzabo, far and wide like a long lash of lightning among the clouds. First one, then another, Manzabo poured in a tempest of black rocks while the west discharged a shower of bulrush. Blow upon blow, thwack upon flack, they fought hand to hand until black rock and bulrush were all gone. Then they betook themselves to hurling crates at each other, cudgeling with huge oak trees and defying each other from one mountain top to the another, while at times they shot enormous boulders and granite across at each other's heads as though they had been mere jackstones. The battle which had commenced on the mountains had extended far west. The west was forced to give ground. Manzaboa, pressing on, drove him across the river and mountains, ridges and lakes, till at last he got him to the very brink of the world. Hold, cried the west, my son, you know my power, and although I am, I am now fairly out of breath. It is impossible to kill me. Stop where you are and I shall also portion you out with as much power as your brothers. The four quarters of the globe are already occupied, but you can go and do a great deal good to the people of the earth, which is beset with serpents, beasts, and monsters, who will make great havoc of human life. Go and do so, and if you put forth half the strength you have today, you will acquire a name that will last forever." When you have finished your work, I will have a place provided for you. You will then go and sit with your brothers, Kinoba in the north. Manzaboa gave his father his hand upon his agreement, and parting, and parting from him, he returned to his own grounds, where he lay for some time sore of his wounds. The next story is... Why the Woodpecker Has Red-Headed Feathers Has Red-Head Feathers Adapted from H.R. Schoolcraft When his wounds had all been cured by his grandmother's skill in medicine, Manzaboa, as a big, sturdy, big and sturdy as ever, was ripe for a new adventure. He set his thoughts immediately upon war excursion against the peril feather, a wicked old Mantino, living on the other side of the great lake who had killed his grandfather. He began his preparations by making huge bows and arrows without number, but he had no arrowheads. At last his grandmother, Noku, told him that the old man who lived at some distance could furnish him with stone, and he sent her to get them, though she returned with a wrapper full 
He told her that she had not enough and sent her again once more. In the meanwhile, he thought to himself, I have must found out a way of making these heads. Instead of directly asking how it was done, he preferred just like Manzabo to deceive his grandmother in order to learn what he wanted by a trick. Noko, he said, while I take my drum and rattle and sing my war songs, war songs, do you go and try and get me some larger heads, for these you have brought me are all the same size. Go and see whether the old man is not willing to make some larger. He followed her at a distance as she went, having left his drum at the lodge with a great bird tied to the top whose fluttering wings could keep a drum beat, the same as if he were standing there beating the drum himself. He saw the old workman busy learning how to prepare the heads. He also he, he also beheld the old man's daughter, who was very beautiful. Manzabo discovered for the first time that he had a heart of his own, and the sigh he heaved passed through the arrow-maker's lodge like a young gale of wind. My, how it blows, said the old man. It must be from the south, though, said the daughter. It is so fragrant. Manzabo slipped away in two strides. He was home, shouting forth his song as though he had never left the lodge. He had just time to untie the bird, which had been beating the drum when his grandmother came in and gave him the big arrowhead. In the evening, the grandmother said, My son, you ought to fast before you go to war, as your brothers do, to find out whether you will be successful or not. He said he had no objection, having privately stored away in a shady place in the forest two or three dozen juicy bears, a moose, twenty strings of the tenderest birds, he could retire from the lodge so far as to be entirely out of view of his grandmother, and fall to and enjoy himself heartily. At nightfall, having dispatched a dozen birds and half a bear or so, he would return tottering and forlorn, as if quite famished, so as to make his grandmother feel sorry for him. When he had finished his term of fasting, in the course of which he slyly dispatched twenty fat bears, six dozen birds, and two fine moose, Manzabo sung his war song and embarked in his canoe for a full preparation of war. Beside his weapon he took along a large supper supply of oil. He traveled rapidly night and day, for he had only to will or speak, and the canoe went. At length he arrived in sight of the fiery serpents and stopped to study them. He noticed that they were of enormous length and of bright color, that they were some distance apart, and that the flames which poured forth from the mouths reached across the pass. So he said good morning and began talking with them in a very friendly way. They were not to be deceived, however. We know who you are, Manzabo, they said. You cannot pass. Turning his canoe as if about to go back, he said suddenly, he suddenly cried out with a loud and terrified voice, What is that behind you? The serpents thrown off their guard, instantly turned their heads, and in a moment Manzabo glided silently past them. Well, said he, softly after he had got by, how about it? He then took up his bow and arrow, and with deliberate aim shot every one of them easily, for the serpents were fixed to one spot and could not even turn around. Having thus escaped the sentinel serpents, Manzabo pushed on in his canoe until he came to a part of the lake called Pitchwater, as whatever touched it was sure 
sure to stick fast. But Manzabo was prepared with his oil and rubbing of his canoe freely with it. From end to end he slipped through with ease, and he was the first person who had ever succeeded in passing through the pitch water. Nothing like a little oil, said Manzabo to himself. Having by this time come in view of land, he could see the lodge of the shining Manitou, high upon the distant hill. At the dawn of day he put his clubs and arrows in order, and began his attack yelling and shouting, and beating his drum and calling out as to make it appear that he had many followers. Surround him, surround him, run up, run up. He stalked bravely forward, shouting aloud, It is you that killed my grandfather, and shot off my whole forest of arrows. The pearl feather appeared on the height blazing like a sun and paid back Manzabo with a tempest of bolts that which rattled like hail. All day long the flight the fight was kept up, and Manzabo had fired all of his arrows but three, which out effect for shining Manito was clothed in pure wampum. It was only by immense leaps to the right and left that Manzabo could save his head from the sturdy blow which fell about him on every side, like pine trees from the hands of the manto. He was very badly bruised and at his very wit's end when a large woodpecker flew past and lit on a tree. It was a bird he had known on the prairie near his grandmother's lodge. Manzabo called out the woodpecker, Your enemy has a weak point. Shoot at the lock of hair on its crown, on the crown of its head. The first arrow he shot only drew a few drops of blood. The manito made about one or two unsteady steps, but recovered himself. He began to parley, but Manzabo, now that he had discovered a way to reach him, was in no humor to trife. And he let slip another arrow, which brought the shiny manito to its knees. Having the crown of its head within good range, Manzabo shot his third arrow, and the manito fell forward upon the ground dead. Manzabo called the woodpecker to come and receive a reward for the timely hint he had given him, and he rubbed the blood of the shining manito on the woodpecker's head, the feathers of which are red to this day. The full victory of Manzabo returned home, beating his war drum furiously, and shouting along his song of triumph. His grandmother was on the shore to welcome him with the war dance which she performed with wonderful skill for one so far advanced in years. The next story is why the diver duck has so few tail feathers. Adapted from H.R. Schoolcraft Having overcome the powerful pearl feather, Killed his ser- having overcome the powerful pl- pearl feather, killed his serpent, and escaped all the wiles and charms, the heart of Manzabo welled with him, an unconquerable desire for further adventure seized upon him. He had won in great fight on land, so he determined his next success should come from him from the water. He tricked his luck as a f- he tried his luck as a fisherman, and with such success that he captured an enormous fish, a fish so rich and fat that with the oil, Manzabo was able to form a small lake. 
Wishing to be generous at the same time, having a cunning plan of his own, he invited all the birds and beasts of his acquaintance to come and feast upon the oil, telling them that the order in which they partook of the banquet would decide how fat each one would be for all time to come. As fast as they arrived, he told them to plunge in and help themselves. The first to make his appearance was the bear, who took so long and steady draught that when the deer and the and the possum and such others of the family as are noted for their comfortable coverings, the moose and the buffalo were late in arriving on the scene, and the partridge, always lean in flesh, looked on till the supply was nearly gone. There was not a drop left by the time the hare and the matter appeared on the shore of the lake, and they are, in consequence, the slenderest of all creatures. When this ceremony was over, Manzibos suggested to his friends, the assembled birds and animals, that the occasion was proper for a little merrymaking, and taking up his drum, he cried out, New song from the south, come brothers dance. They all fell in and commenced their rounds. Whenever Manzibo, as he stood in the circle, saw a fat fowl which he fancied pass him, he adroitly wrung its neck and slipped it under his belt, at the same time beating his drum and singing at the top of his lungs to drown out the noise of the fluttering crying out of the tone of the ad admiration. That's the way, my brothers, that's the way. At last, a small duck of the family diver family, thinking there was something wrong, opened one eye and saw that Manzibo and saw what Manzibo was doing, giving a spring and crying, Aha, Manzibo is killing us. He made a dash for the water. Manzibo was so angry that the creature should have played the spy that he gave chase, and just as the diver duck was getting into the water, he gave him a kick which is the reason the diver's tail's feathers are so few. His back flattened and his legs straightened out, so that when he is seen walking on land, he makes a sorry-looking figure. The other birds, having no uh, ambition to be thrust into Manzibo's belt, flew off, and the animals scampered into the woods. The next story is Manzibo is changed into a wolf, adapted by H.R. Schoolcraft. One evening, Manzibo was taking along the shore of the great lake. Weary and hungry, he met a great magician in the form of an old wolf with six young ones coming toward him. The wolf no sooner caught sight of him than he told his whelps, who were close behind him, to keep out of the way of Manzibo. For I know, he said, that this is the mischievous fellow whom we see yonder. The young wolves were in fact the act of running off when Manzibo cried out, My grandchildren, where are you going? Stop, and I will go with you. I wish to have a little chat with your excellent father. Saying which, he advanced and greeted the old wolf, expressing himself as delighted to see him looking so well. Whither do you journey? he asked. We are looking for a good hunting ground to go past the winter, the old wolf answered. What brings you here? I was looking for you, said Manzibo. For I have a passion for chase, brother. I always admire your family. Are you willing to change me into a wolf? The wolf gave him a favorable answer, and he was forthwith changed into a wolf. Well, that will do, said Manzibo. 
but he said, looking at his tail, Could you oblige me by making my tail a little longer and more bushy, just a little more bushy? Certainly, said the wolf, and he straightened away and gave Manzaboo such a length and spread of tail that it was continually getting between his legs, and it was so heavy that it was as much as he could do to carry it. But having asked for it, he was ashamed to say a word, and they all straggled off in company, dashing up the ravine. After getting into the woods for some distance, they ran across the track of moose. The young ones scampered in pursuit, the old wolf and Manzabo following at their leisure. Well, said the old wolf, by passing of starting the conversation, who do you think it is the fastest of the boys? Can you tell by the jumps they take? Why, he replied, that one that takes such long jumps, he is surely the fastest. Ha ha, you are mistaken, said the old wolf. He makes a good start, but he will be the first to tire out. This one who appears to be behind will be the one to kill the game. By this time they had come to the spot where the boys had started in chase. One had dropped what had seemed to be a small medicine sack, which he carried for the use of the hunting party. Take that, Manzabo, said the old wolf. Why, what will I do with a dirty dogskin? The old wolf took it up, and it was a beautiful robe. Oh, I will carry it now, cried Manzabo. Oh, no, said the wolf, who had used his magical powers. It is a robe of pearls. Come along. And away he sped at great rate and speed. Not so fast, Manzabo, after him. And then he added to himself as he panted after, Oh, this tail. Coming to a place where the moose had lain down, they saw that the young wolves had made a fresh start of their prey. Why, said the old wolf, this moose is thin. I know by their tracks I can always tell whether they are fat or not. A little farther on, one of the young wolves in a dashing at the moose had broken a tooth on a tree. Manzabo cried the old wolf, one of your grandchildren has shot at the game. Take his arrow, there it is. No, replied Manzabo, what will I do with a dirty dog's tooth? The old wolf took it up, and behold it was a beautiful silver arrow. When they at last overtook them, they found that the youngster had killed a very fat moose. Manzabo was very hungry, but the old wolf just then again exerted his magical powers, and Manzabo saw nothing but the bones picked quite clean. He thought to himself, just as I expected, dirty greedy fellows, if it had not been for this long log at my back, I should have been able to be in time to have gotten a mouthful. Then he cursed the bushy tail, which he carried to the bottom of his heart. The old wolf finally called out to one of the young ones, Give some meat to your grandfather. One of them obeyed, and coming near Manzipo, he presented him the end of his own bushy tail, which was now nicely seasoned with burrs gathered in the course of the hunt. Manzibo jumped and called out, You dog, do you think I'm going to eat you? And as he walked off in anger, Come back, brother, cried the wolf. You are losing your eyes. You do the child injustice. Look there, I, and behold, a heap of fresh meat was laying on the spot, all prepared. Manzibo turned back, and at the sight of so much food, so much good food, put on a smiling face. Wonderful, he said. How fine a meat it is. Yes, replied the old wolf. It is always so with us. We know our work and always get the best. It's not a long tail that makes the hunter. Manzibo bit his lip.
Menzibo is robbed by the wolves, adapted by H.R. Schoolcraft. Shortly after this, the old wolf suggested to Manzibo that he should go out and try his luck in hunting himself. When he chose to put his mind to it, he was quite an expert, and this time he succeeded in killing a fine fat moose, which he thought he would take aside slyly and devour alone. He was very hungry, and he sat down to eat, but as he never could get go to work in a straightforward way, he immensely he immediately fell into great doubts as to the proper point in which to begin. Well, said he, I do not know where to commence. At the head? No, people will laugh and say he ate him backwards. He went to the side. No, said he, they will say I ate him sideways. Then he went to the hind quarter. No, that will not do. Either they will say I ate him forward or I will begin here and say what they will. He took delicate piece from a small of the back and was just on the point of putting it to his mouth when the tree close by made a creaking noise. He seemed vexed at the sound. He raised the morsel to his mouth and the second time when the tree creaked again. Why, he exclaimed, I cannot eat when I hear such a noise. Stop, stop, he cried to the tree. He put down the morsel of meat, exclaiming, I cannot eat with such a noise. I am starting away. He climbed the tree and was actually pulling at the limb which had bothered him when his forepaw was caught between the branches so and he could not free himself. While thus held fast, he saw a pack of wolves advancing through the woods in the direction of his meat. He suspected them to be the old wolf and his cubs, but night was coming on and he could not make them out. Go the other way, go the other way, he cried out. What do you expect to get here? The wolves stopped for a while and talked among themselves and said Manzibo must have something there or he would not tell us to go another way. I begin to know to know him, said the old wolf and all his tricks. Let us go forward and see. And it came on and finding the moose soon made away with it. Manzibo looked wistfully on while they ate until they were fully satisfied when off they scampered in high spirits. A heavy blast of wind opened the branches finally and released him. The wolves had left nothing but bare bones he made for home. When he related his mishap, the old wolf, taking him by the forepaw, condoled him with deeply on his ill luck. A tear even started a tear even started to his eyes as he added, My brother, this should teach you not to meddle with the points of ceremony when we have good meat to eat. Manzibo and the Woodpeckers, adapted from H.R. Schoolcraft. Manzibo lost the greater part of his magical powers through letting his young wolf grandson fall through the thin ice and drown. No one knew where his grandmother had gone to. He married the arrow maker's daughter and became a father of several children, but he was very poor and scarcely able to produce a living. His lodge was pitched in a in a distant part his lodge was his lodge was pitched in a distant part of the country where he could get no game and it was winter time one day he said to his wife i will go out walking and see if i can find some lodge after walking some time he finally discovered a lodge at distance there were children playing at the door 
and when they saw him approaching, they ran in and told their parents Manzabo was coming. It was the home of the large red-headed woodpecker. He came to the door and asked Manzabo to enter, and at the invitation was promptly accepted. After some time, the woodpecker, who was a magician, said to his wife, Have you nothing to give Manzabo? He must be hungry. She answered, No. He ought not to go without his supper, said the woodpecker. I will see what I can do. In the center of the lodge stood a large tamarack tree. Upon a woodpecker flew and commenced going up, turning his head on each side of the tree and every now and then driving in his bill. At last he pulled something out of the tree and threw it down, when behold a fine fat raccoon lay on the ground. He drew out six or seven more and then came down and told his wife to prepare them. Manzibo, he said, this is the only thing we eat. What else can we give you? It is very good, replied Manzibo. They smoked their pipes and conversed, and after a while Manzibo got ready to go home. So the woodpecker said to his wife, Give him the other raccoons to take home for his children. In the act of leaving the lodge, Manzibo on purpose dropped one of his mittens, which was soon after observed upon the ground. Run, said the woodpecker to his eldest son, and give it to him. But mind that you not give it Mind you, not give it into his hand. Throw it at him, for there is no knowing what he may do. He acts so curiously. The boy did as he was directed. Grandfather, he said, as he came up to him, you have left one of your mittens, and here it is. Yes, he said, making believe he did not know. He had dropped it. So I did. But don't throw it. You will get it wet in the snow. The lad, however, threw it and was about to return when Manzibo cried out, Bok, Bok, stop, is that all you eat? You eat nothing else with your raccoon? Tell me. Yes, that is all, answered the young woodpecker. We have nothing else. Tell your father, continued Manzibo, to come and visit me, and let him bring a sack. I will give him what he shall call, what he shall eat with his raccoon meat. The young one returned and reported this message to his father. The old woodpecker turned up his nose at the invitation. I wonder, he said, what he thinks he has got. Poor fellow. He was bound, however, to answer the offer of hospitality, and he went accordingly, taking along a cedar sack to pay a visit to Manzibo. Manzibo received the old red-headed woodpecker with great ceremony. He had stood at the door, waiting his arrival, and as soon as he came into the sight of Manzibo, commenced while he was yet far off, bowing and opening wide his arms in token of welcome, all of which the woodpecker returned in due form by ducking his bill and hoping, hopping to the right and left, extending his wings to their full length and fluttering them back to his breast. When the woodpecker at last reached the lodge, Manzibo made several remarks upon the weather, the appearance of the country, and specially spoke of the sanctity of game. But we, he added, are always have enough. Come in, and you shall not go away hungry, my noble birds. Manzibo had always prided himself on being able to give as good as he had received, and to be up with the woodpeckers he had shifted his lodge so as to enclose a large dry tamarack tree. What can I give you, said he to the woodpecker, as we eat so shall you eat. With this he hopped forward, and jumping on the tamarack tree, he attempted to climb it just as he had seen the woodpecker do in his own lodge. 
He turned his head first on one side and then to the other, as the woodpecker does, striving to go up the tree, but as often slipping down. Every now and then he would strike the tree with his nose as if it was a bell and draw back as if to pull something out of the tree, but he pulled out no raccoons. He dashed his nose so often against the trunk that at last the blood began to flow and he tumbled down senseless to the ground. The woodpecker started up with his drum and rattled to restore him, and by beating them violently he succeeded to bring him to. As soon as he came to his senses, Manzibo began to lay the blame of his failure upon his wife, saying to his guest, Nimisho, it is this woman's relation of yours she is the cause of my not succeeding. She has made me a worthless fellow. Before I married her, I also could get raccoons. The woodpecker said nothing, but flying on the tree, he drew out several fine raccoons. Here, said he, this is the way we do it, and left him in disdain, carrying his bill high in the air and stepping over the door still, as if it were not worthy to be touched by his toes. The Boys and the Wolves Retold by Andrew Lang Once upon a time, an Indian hunter built himself a house in the middle of a great forest, far away from all his tribe, for the heart was gentle and kind, and he was very weary of treachery and cruel deeds of those who had his friends, of those who had been his friends. So he left them and took his wife and three children and journeyed on until they found a spot near to a clean stream where they began to cut down trees and to make ready their wigwam. For many years they lived peacefully and happily in this sheltered place, never leaving it except to hunt wild animals, which served them both for food and clothes. At last, however, the strong man fell sick, and before long Lai knew he must die. So he gathered his family around him and said his last words to them, you, my wife, the companion of my days, will follow me ere many moons have waned to the island of the blessed. But for you, my old children, whose lives are but newly begun, the wickedness and unkindness and ingratitude from which I fled are before you. Yet I shall go hence in peace, my children, if you will promise always to love each other and never forsake your youngest brother. Never, they replied, holding out their hands, and the hunter died content. Scarcely eight moons had passed when, just as he had said, the wife went forth and followed her husband, but before leaving her children, she bade the two eldest ones think of the promise never to forsake the younger, for he was a child and weak, and while the snow lay thick upon the ground, they tended him and cherished him. But when the earth showed green again, the heart of the young man stirred within him, and he longed to see the wigwams of the village where his father's youth was spent. Therefore he opened all his heart to his sister, who answered, My brother, I understand your longing for our fellow men, whom here we cannot see. But remember our father's words. Shall we not seek our own pleasures and forget the little one? But he would not listen, and making no reply, he took his bow and arrow and left the hunt. The snow fell and melted, yet never he returned, 
and at last the heart of the girl grew cold and hard, and her little boy became a burden in her eyes, till one day she spoke thus to him, See, there is food for many days to come. Stay here within the shelter of the hut. I will go seek out our brother, and when I have found him, I shall return hither. But when, after a hard day's journey, she reached the village where her brother dwelt and saw that he had a wife and was happy, and when she too was sought by a young brave, then she also forgot the boy alone in the forest and thought only of her husband. Now as soon as the little boy had eaten all the food which his sister had left him, he went out into the woods and gathered berries and dug up roots, and while the sun shone he was content and had his fill, but when the snow began and the wind howled, his stomach felt empty, and his limbs cold, and he hid in the trees in the night, only crept out to eat what the wolves had left behind, and by and by, having no friends, he sought their company and sat by, while they devoured their prey, and they grew to know him and gave him food, and without them he would have died in the snow. But at last the snow melted, and the ice upon the great lake, and as the wolves went down to the shore, the boy went after them. And it happened one day that his big brother was fishing in his canoe near the shore, and he heard the voice of a child singing in the Indian tone, My brother, my brother, I am becoming a wolf, I am becoming a wolf. And we had, and when he had so sung, he howled as wolves howl. Then the heart of the elder sank, and he hastened toward him, crying, Brother, little brother, come to me. But he, being half a wolf, only continued his song. The louder the elder called to him, Brother, little brother, come to me. The swifter he fled after his brothers, the wolves, and the heavier grew his skin, till with a long howl he vanished into the depths of the forest. So with the shame and anguish in his soul, the eldest brother went back to his village, and with his sister mourned the little boy and the broken promise till the end of their lives. So this is it for this recording of the Junior Classics Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales. We have caught up to where we left off on Episode 1. Like I said, this was a Back to the Future episode, kind of, where we went back and read uh, what we missed. The next recording will be uh, Saturday, I mean Sunday, starting at 10, around 10 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. We do the State of the Union, where I go over the things that are coming up in the week that are about to be released and projects I'm working on and blog posts I'm writing. And so I do the State of the Union first, and then we do Reading Aloud, and then the Reading Aloud ASMR and podcast and then after that, we are going to do some photo editing. So I want to thank everyone for coming out. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.